We've been journeying through the Bible, and uh, we have not had difficulty from Genesis through the New Testament uh, finding underdogs, finding women and men who were in so many ways facing long odds, all right, either uh, physical odds like Mephibosheth who was physically disabled or, or financially poor or, or just people in positions of weakness, people facing uh, impossible, impossibly strong adversaries who through their faith in God experienced victory. Um, and we have seen through their living testimonies, the testimonies of these underdogs, that no one is without hope. So what about you? That's kind of the question of this series. We're not just talking about people who lived a long time ago. We want to bring this into today. What about you? Do you have this sort of living faith that allows you to, to put your feet on the floor each morning as you get out of bed and to believe that God has something good for you? Are you, are you a person who's putting your faith into action as a disciple of Jesus Christ, obeying his commands, um, praying and trusting that he's at work in your life, in your family, in your world. Where, well, as we roll this morning into Luke chapter 7, we have a very interesting underdog. He is a Roman centurion, and he blows Jesus away by his faith. Now, I suppose you could say, what sort of underdog is this? He's Roman. He's a centurion. He's a person of some power, um, some privilege, uh, a person probably of some, some prosperity, some means. Um, how is this person an underdog? Well, in Israel, he's an underdog because he is a spiritual outsider, right? He is not Jewish. He's not one of God's chosen people here. And so that makes him a sort of underdog. Now, he's a guy, and I suppose most centurions were, who arrived at his position, who rose up through the ranks um, because of his hard work, because of his character, because of the morale, the esprit de corps that he built within his men. Um, as a centurion, he commanded 100 or perhaps 60 to 100 men at any given moment. Um, he was also a person who was under the command of a Roman general. He um, may have had money, but he wasn't privileged, as I said. He was somebody who um, didn't inherit his wealth or his title, but he had to earn it through his years in the Roman legions, in a world, now think about this for a second, in a world where, at least to the Jews, the Romans were the bad guys, and officers in the Roman army would have been the really bad guys, this fellow in Luke chapter 7 is different. He did not believe in using indiscriminate violence against those he was over. He did not extort money from the Jewish people. In fact, he was, he was a, sort of, a sort of outlier. He was a diamond in the rough. He was a good-hearted Roman centurion in a world where most Roman soldiers were by, at least in their estimation, by necessity, cruel. Normally, when we think, at least if you're, if you're pretty well versed in the Bible, if you think of Capernaum, you think of fishing village, or perhaps you think of hometown of Peter. Um, normally you might think of that. Um, but this centurion in that village was very involved in civic life of the Jews, in the civic life of the Jews. 
leaders, elders from the Jewish community, came to Jesus in Luke chapter 7, verse 5, and they said, this centurion loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Think about that. This outsider from Rome, this Roman soldier, he loves us. And he built our synagogue. He built our place of worship here in this town. Like I said, the guy's different. Occupying soldier who's fallen in love with the Jewish people on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And his care, his affection for them had been translated into the very costly gift of the building of their house of worship. But, however, he is still an outsider. He is still an intruder from Rome. And he understands that he is not one of them. He is not a Jew. And no amount of do-gooding, no amount of synagogue building will make him one. So he asks, this Roman centurion asks the Jewish elders, would you go on my behalf to Jesus and ask him for a, a huge favor for me? The Lord had finished a long day of teaching and healing, and he was finishing up his rounds coming into the village of Capernaum, uh, most likely going to have dinner at Peter's house, spend the night at Peter's home as well. As he comes into town, these Jewish elders approach him, they surround him, and they are pleading on behalf of their friend, the centurion. They say, we know a Roman captain. He has a servant that he loves very much. His servant is dying. Please, Rabbi Jesus, heal his servant. Now, I know what you're thinking, Jesus. He's, he's a Roman soldier, but, but he's kind of like one of us, all right? Um, he, he loves our community. He built our synagogue, and he even loves his slave. He's friends with his servant, and he desperately needs a miracle from God, and he understands the only way his servant is going to get better is to experience a miracle from God. Now, the servant is right there in Capernaum, just a stone's throw from where this conversation is happening. So Jesus, happening. So Jesus says, yeah, all right, let's go. Let's go. So they start walking across town. That wasn't, it wasn't a very long journey across Capernaum. But before they get across town, Jesus is once again interrupted by another group of emissaries from the centurion. This time, it's some of the centurion's friends. And, and they stop Jesus and, and here's how it goes in Luke chapter 7, verses 6 to 10. So Jesus went with them. This is the first group, the Jewish elders. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I am not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this. I know this. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers. I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go. Come and they come. 
And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. Jesus, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to the house, they found the slave completely healed. Think about that for a second. At no point does the centurion actually see Jesus. At no point does the Lord see the centurion or even see the servant of the centurion. At no point in this narrative. And that's kind of surprising. What's even more surprising is that according to this account, in verse 3, the centurion had never at any point seen Jesus or witnessed the miracle of Jesus. Now that's faith. We should be surprised by this. At least according to the text, Jesus was. Jesus was quite surprised by this. So why did the centurion keep sending friends? Why did the centurion keep sending other people to talk to Jesus, other people to ask Jesus on his behalf? Why doesn't he go personally? Is he embarrassed to be seen with this Jewish rabbi? Is that what's going on here? Well, it's not. It's not because of that. In fact, according to the text, it's really the exact opposite. He, he thinks Jesus might be embarrassed to be seen with the likes of him. I mean, a Roman soldier showing up, perhaps with an escort of guards or whatever, he, just, he thinks Jesus deserves more than that. Jesus would not be honored in that kind of situation. He didn't want to walk up to Jesus in, in full centurion garb with an escort with kind of the implicit message there being, poor itinerant rabbi, you better heal my servant or else. He doesn't want that to, to, to taint the story here. And he doesn't want to put Jesus, the rabbi, in the tricky position of having to feel like he has to walk inside of a Gentile's house. So the centurion, without ever having met Jesus, knew that Jesus had been sent from God and that Jesus had authority over the forces of nature had absolute authority with one of his words to heal his servant. No questions asked, period. He had that kind of faith. He had faith in the authority of Jesus. And, and, and as we find in the text, this, this kind of description that he gives us of, of that understanding, he's a career soldier. Romans knew how authority worked. He knew that his men under his charge had to obey his orders. He understood that he was under the charge of another officer and that he had to obey the orders of that officer. Roman soldiers knew this, or else, how did this Italian city, Mahan, how did this Italian city end up conquering the world? I mean, they obviously had a very clear understanding of, of the issue on, on military clarity on the issue of following orders and authority. So the centurion has this faith that amazes Jesus. The soldier understands that Jesus doesn't even need to touch his servant, doesn't even need to walk in the same house as his servant, doesn't need to perform a, a complex enchantment or ritual that the power of Jesus is not magic. It is an issue of God-given authority. The centurion understands this. 
Jesus says the word, my, sin, my servant gets healed. And as, and as we read in verse 10 a moment ago, by the time the centurion's friends got back home, the servant is healed. And he's not like kind of healed, right? Or kind of, he's not like on the mend. He's not sitting there eating his chicken soup saying, boy, got to get my strength back. I mean, the text says that he is completely, he's in perfect health. He looks great, better than he looked before he got sick. Now, this story gets my attention really principally because this man's faith amazes Jesus amazes Jesus. It gets my attention because the centurion wasn't even Jewish. It gets my attention um, because of how he understood how things work in the spiritual realm. It gets my attention because I see a kind of faith here that is simple and real, simple and grounded in an understanding of who Jesus is. So I ask myself, do I want a faith that pleases Jesus, that amazes Jesus like this? Of course I do. Do I, do I want a faith that accomplishes things through my trust in God, accomplishes things like we're accomplishing this story? Of course I do. Now, I love the, the way the message translates verse 9. It gives us a great visualization of the kind of the conclusion of the story. The message puts it this way in verse 9, taken aback. Jesus addressed the accompanying crowd. I've yet to come across this kind of simple trust anywhere in Israel. The very people who are supposed to know about God and how he works. Now I can think of a few things about, I, I can think of a very few things, perhaps nothing in Christianity that is more important than Faith, right? I mean, the Bible tells us that in in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. In Ephesians 2 verse 8, it says we are saved by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, it says that we, as, as disciples of Jesus, we walk by, we walk by faith. We live by faith, right? Now, as I was thinking about it this week, I hope you'll enjoy this, and I hope it helps you to understand. Um, as we think about authentic, genuine faith, and as we think about some other lesser versions of faith that we're offered, I hope this helps you, you think about this a little bit. We're going to play just some really short clips, uh, some really short song clips to kind of make this point. Um, from if, if we have any U2 fans here, you will certainly recognize the song. Probably most everyone will recognize the song. I still haven't found what, I've look at, what I'm looking for. I mean, th- th- you guys know, U2, not a one-hit wonder, right? This is a, one of the great bands, right? A catalog of hits like that one. Um, and when you get to be that big, when your music sells that well, there will be covers or other versions 
or, or recreations of the song, right? So here are some of the, the recreations that I kind of hope you haven't had the pain of hearing before. Um, I think the first one we have is the Gregorian chant version of the song. That's plenty. That's plenty of that one. Or perhaps the the angel voices <laughs> rendition of the song. Angel voices. All right. All right. Or um, if you're not already cringing and you love you too, you'll definitely be cringing by this one. Now, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, but I'm pretty sure it's none of those last (laughs) three versions. All right, there are versions of the gospel. There are versions of faith that are not powerful, that are not beautiful, that will not move your life forward. When we were in Rio, I, I had a friend there named Sosa. I got to know Sosa because he lived near us and he operated or he owned and operated a salon near our home. So when I when we first moved there and we're trying to build relationships with everybody in our little community, I went down there to get my hair cut and over time we developed a relationship and I would sometimes just drop by his salon to say hi and stuff. Sosa was was a 50-something guy, a little overweight, bleached blonde hair, um, big loud personality, had a wife, all right? Um, and they together operated this salon. And so over months of kind of getting to know him a little bit and stuff, um, I, I got, and, and I found that he is a spiritual searcher. This guy is really hungry for spiritual things. So it was, it was not hard for us to talk about the spiritual world. And eventually, Sosa invited me to his apartment, which was, which was just a couple of blocks away, and, and we to have a Bible study. So I, I was excited about that, and I got to go over to his apartment and, and, and study with, with his wife and with him and talk about, have conversations about spiritual things. Um, here's the thing. Um, it, it became clear to me that I was talking about the Bible, right? That I was talking about the things of God. That's what I was interested in. But Sosa wanted to know how to use faith to achieve his goals. A lot of people do. That's what he wanted, all right? He wanted, to, he wanted to grow his business. He wanted to move his business into a higher rent part of town. He and his wife wanted to purchase a second home, a, a beachfront property there just outside of Rio. He wanted to make enough money to travel abroad. And he believed that faith could unlock all of this in his life. And so we had these conversations. And what I found, at least he was upfront and honest about it, once we started opening the Bible together, um, what I found was in Sosa, there was a form of faithiness, right? There was a form of faithiness. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, it, it's this idea that Sosa had that if he could simply visualize the future that he desired, right, that I could create that mental image there, he thought, 
And if he believed strongly enough in that, if he did not allow himself to doubt it, it would happen, right? That was his faithiness. It, it, was, it, was, a, it, it was a faith that did not have an object outside of itself. It wasn't really a faith in God. It was a faith in, in faith. It was a faith in the power of believing. It was a faith in the power of positive thinking. It was this belief that faith for Sosa could be this tool that he could use to unleash the future that he wanted, right? And so on your outline this morning, this is kind of the first lesser version, all right? The cover or the remake of faith, and it's, it's, I'm calling it faithiness, which, yeah, the spell checker Barbara complained this week, it caught that it didn't like that word. Apparently, it's not a word, but it is now. It is now. Faithiness is the belief in the power of faith itself, having faith in faith. Um, real faith, this kind of the idea, real faith means believing so hard that what I imagine springs into being. It doesn't require much of you. It doesn't require obedience to God. It does, there's not a prerequisite of having a relationship with Jesus. Um, it doesn't require you to yield to the promptings of the Spirit. It doesn't require a life of, of, of yielding to the Word of God, um, of, of the Word of God having authority in your life. And in fact, faithiness really doesn't really, I mean, it just doesn't really need God, honestly. Um, it, it, it's a faith in faith itself. And, and that, is not, that is not faith in the Bible, all right? Here's another version of, of, of faith, um, and it is blind faith. I'm sure you've heard that phrase used before, blind faith. He or she has blind faith in so-and-so or in this, this or that. It is, this is kind of the idea of blind faith. It is believing that the blinder the leap, the more faith you have. The blinder the leap, the more faith you have. Real faith means believing on little or no evidence. You might remember from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, great source of theological knowledge. Indy, at one point toward the end of his journey to, to, to find the Holy Grail, comes, comes into this great chasm, and there is no apparent bridge across the chasm. He must simply step out into the air and believe that he will make it across, and there is this line in the movie. Faith is a blind leap into the dark. The blinder the leap, the greater the faith, right? That's kind of the idea in a nutshell of blind faith. But that's not the kind of faith the centurion had. Although he had never spoken to Jesus, never met Jesus, this isn't his faith because he had compelling information from reliable sources that led him to believe that, in fact, Jesus was from God, and that, in fact, Jesus had authority over the sickness of his servant. Faith is, faith is not about having no rational belief. At least, biblical faith is not that. Now, lest we slide into the next version, let's talk about the next version, which is kind of the other side of that. Empirical faith. Empirical faith. That means hard data, hard science, material, physical evidence. Empirical faith. Believing in something because it 
makes sense. Um, Real faith means deciding based on the best available evidence. Here's essentially how it works. I mean, empirical faith says, hey, yeah, we all have to take some leaps, right? We, We don't know exactly how X, Y, or Z is going to work out, so we have to make that leap. But first, we gather all of the evidence possible, like this week, Uh, My wife and I are going to travel out to Malibu for the Pepperdine lectureships, and we're going to go by plane. And it's kind of like thinking, well, we studied um, train travel and car travel and air travel, and based on on data over the last 20 years, we decided that the most reliable form of transportation for us is to catch an airplane out of DFW. So empirical faith says that that's kind of the, the calculation that we make But at some point, we have to make that step. This probably makes a lot more sense to you than the other versions. However, it is not biblical because the Bible says that God is spirit. God is spirit. All right? There are are physical manifestations of God. We we see physical um, reactions and, and, and realities in our universe that we believe were caused by God, but he is a spiritual being, which means we can't necessarily test him using a microscope or using a telescope um, that, that we can't simply use. He's not material test, materially testable in ways that a bacteria might be, right? God's not like that. All right, here's another version of faith. It's, it, it, it's irrational faith. I've actually run across this one before. Some people think this is, this is the way it's, this is what faith really is, irrational faith. It is believing that the more irrational the faith, the stronger the faith, right? Um, Real faith means believing despite the evidence. Remember, blind faith is I have no evidence, and I'm going to go ahead and step out. That's what faith really is. Irrational faith says, no, there's plenty of evidence. It all points in this direction, but I'm going to go the other way, right? That's kind of what irrational faith believes Uh, about what real faith is. It's kind of believing in spite of the evidence or believing against the evidence. Um, And then we see the faith of the centurion and the faith of Scripture. This is is, um, biblical faith, the last kind of faith, biblical faith. It is believing in the living God revealed in the Bible. Real faith means trusting that the invisible God is at work in my visible world. Believing that the invisible God is at work in my visible world. That should sound something like the first couple of verses of Hebrews, um, that there is an invisible God at work in the world. Faith believes that. In Luke chapter 7, verse 9, it goes like this from the message, taken about Jesus addressed the accompanying crowd, I've yet to come across this simple trust anywhere in Israel, the very people who are supposed to know about God and how he works. You see, Jesus is making it very clear here. Here's the Roman. He's a centurion. He's an outsider. He's a non-Jew, but he understands and he exercises biblical faith in a way I'm not even seeing in God's chosen people. Jesus makes that point. The guy's a career soldier. Let's just be real quick. He is not head in the clouds. He is not listening to the angel voices version of the song. He is not new agey. 
Um, he is a soldier. He is not naive. He doesn't go around believing everything he hears. He is battle-hardened in the real world. He has an appreciation for the way things work in the real world. And with that, he knew that there was more to the world. There was more going on than the five senses. There was more at work than what he could hear, taste, touch, feel, and smell. That there is God at work, and you have to have a sixth sense, faith, in order to operate in that realm, in order to partner with God. And so this is the centurion. People of faith, real, genuine, biblical faith, don't practice faithiness. They don't believe in the power of believing. No, they believe and trust in the living God revealed in scriptures, the God who is at work in the visible and invisible realms. And they experience him. It is not a naive trust. It is not a blind trust. It is a trust built on a relationship. A father-child relationship. And it is a trust built on real experiences of the, of the faithfulness of God in difficult, difficult circumstances. And sometimes, thankfully, in good and wonderful circumstances, the believer, the person of faith, has walked with God and they have seen him at work, not just in the Bible. They have seen him at work in their life. God is at work among us. Jesus is at work among us. Will you put your faith in Jesus this morning? Will you put your faith in the work he has accomplished for you on the cross? Will you put your faith in the plans He has for your future? Will you put your faith in Him to be Lord over your life? To walk as a disciple? We've seen what happens when Jesus is given authority. Will you give Jesus authority over your life? Will you put your belief into action? by confessing your faith in Jesus, by being baptized into Jesus and beginning to walk with him.